Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Physician autonomy, patient autonomy, state authority. When it comes to end-of-life issues, these spheres do not interact smoothly. Legal and medical ethical questions abound. Today, we are going to take a deep dive into all topics surrounding right to die with one of our nation's leading medical ethicists. Prepare for a thoughtful exploration of an important and complex topic next on Sound Practice. My guest today is Ira Bedzo. Dr. Bedzo teaches at Emory University. He is a senior scholar of the Aspen Center for Social Values. Professor Bedzo is also an Orthodox rabbi. It's my pleasure to welcome Ira Bedzo to Sound Practice. Professor, thank you for joining me. No, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I have been for quite some time. Let's start, and we're going to be discussing end-of-life issues today, and end-of-life debates typically involve discussions of suffering. Is this really the only metric we should be considering? So the question of suffering is actually a really difficult question when you think about metrics. One of the reasons why it's so so difficult is a lot of times the discourse around medical aid and dying is, is focused on suffering and alleviation of suffering. Um, and in that respect, it also speaks to uh, the responsibilities of physicians who are looking to cure disease, care for patients, and alleviate their suffering. So when you look at the discourse around suffering, uh, it's used as a way to advocate for medical aid and dying within a medical responsibility. The difficulty with looking at suffering in that respect is the AMA Code of Ethics um, looks at the responsibility of a physician in terms of their role as a healer. And when they look at what alleviating suffering means, they don't see it as a value in and of itself, but as a value that's part of the caring and curing process, right? So the AMA Code of Ethics is, is actually against uh, medical aid uh, in dying, even if they recognize that the act of being a physician is a moral activity that arises from the imperative to alleviate suffering. From a legal perspective, suffering is not actually uh, a reason to uh, justify medical aid in dying. If you look at all of the uh, legal justification for um, death with dignity statutes, it's, it's always centered around autonomy, um, meaning people have uh, both the ability and the right to choose uh, their own care. Uh, and um, because we already have a well-established precedent of right to refuse treatment, even if that ref uh, refusal of treatment will uh, lead to a person's demise, then so too should people have the right to choose their own demise from a, from a, a positive sense as opposed to a negative sense. Meaning instead of refusing treatment, they should also be able to facilitate their, their own death. So when you look at suffering, suffering is really used more for a rhetorical device than for a ethical or a legal reason. 
um, people who recognize the suffering of people at their end of life, who who understand that that suffering could be seen as either needless um, or um, taking away from the quality of a person's life over their lifespan, it becomes a, a, a motivating factor to find justification for, for death and dignity, but it doesn't actually serve as a justification in and of itself. So the legal rights then, the extent that they, they exist for, for ending one's life, you relate to, to autonomy. Does that mean that if I am not mentally competent, I lose my legal rights to end of life? Yeah, I mean, this is like a huge, a huge debate, right? So, and it really depends on what, if you're saying what's currently on the books or what advocates or proponents are saying, right? So I'll give you what the advocacy argument is, right? So the advocacy argument is, uh, look, we have a, a right to autonomy. Um, that right to autonomy uh, is uh, such that I, through my informed consent, am able to choose which treatment alternatives um, I'm allowed, uh, I'm able to, to, to uh, engage in or, 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 or have the ability to choose which treatment alternatives are right for my care or for my goals and values. Um, I also have the right to not choose any alternatives. If I already have a right to choose uh, to not um, uh, be treated, as long as I am competent and have capacity. So now there's a question of suicidality. Um, but if I have the right to choose uh, to, with, uh, to, to withhold uh, treatment or to, to have treatment withdrawn, so too should I have the, the ability to speak to my, my healthcare goals and values um, to seek death with dignity. So they're turning a negative liberty right into a positive right or a, a, a um, entitlement. So that's really the the the, the advocacy um, uh, argument. So then you would say, look, in extension, that right to autonomy is not simply whether I'm competent de facto or not, um, because I'm allowed to have um, or I'm able to give advanced directives. So so too should I be able to do advanced directives. For the facilitation of death with dignity as well, like that would take it the whole step. Um, those who are uh, against death with dignity, depending on what they are against, um, says that argument goes too far. They'll either say, um, "Look, e even if we have advanced directives for withdrawing of treatment, we having with uh, advanced directives to facilitate treatment um, or facilitate death with dignity is a very is a very big leap." They may say also that. There's a big difference between withdrawing of care and withholding care and facilitating one's death. Like, don't make that same, uh, don't make that leap, right? Um, the the final way that 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 people who are opposed to death with dignity um, uh, would would argue is saying, look, even if an individual has autonomy to choose their own care, there is also a state interest uh, in preserving life and to preventing suicide. So any individual uh, uh, individual rights, um, especially when uh, they're in a state of ambiguity, um, has to be balanced against state interests. So th those that's really where the legal debate plays in. I mean, on the ethics side, it's a little bit different, but from a from the legal side, that that's really where the discussions has been has been gone. Okay, well, let's let's stick with with state interests because it's not entirely clear to me why end-of-life issues uh, and regulations are the province of state legislatures. Now, 
I have met state legislators and I have met physicians. And I, I got to say, I prefer the physicians making these calls. Um, do you agree? Yeah, so let's 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 answer this one. This one's a good question too. So first off, state interests typically are seen in judicial decisions. It's not really about legislation. So legislation can override a state interest. Um, second, uh, over time, uh, the state interest in preserving life and the state interest in uh, preventing suicide has has really decreased over uh, over the past decades. Uh, one of the reasons for that is typically state interest is a presumption of what a reasonable person would want. So as that presumption gets weakened, so does the state interest, right? Now, the bigger question of, should the courts be involved in this? Or should states be involved with this? Meaning like, who should be making these decisions? This is a big question that speaks to all aspects of, of, of healthcare today, not just with end of life. Um, one of the questions to think about here is, um, in end-of-life care, um, how much, or I would even say this, in questions of uh, personal choice and morality, how much do we want states to legislate morality and legislate personal choice, or um, how much do we want individuals to have the freedom to make choices um, that... Um, even if they have an effect on other people, are really their own choices to make. I will actually say one more, more thing on that. So you could be someone who is morally opposed to death with dignity, but still be an advocate for death with dignity legislation, right? Because what you're looking to is um, not having the state encroach upon your personal liberties or other people's personal liberties, even if you would never choose death with dignity for yourself out of a moral um, uh, a sense of morality. Excellent. I wish we had a few more of those citizens. Um, <laughs> so how do we discuss end of life issues without involving beginning of life issues? Aren't we really discussing what is life and uh, may we influence its longevity? Yeah, so that's, that's a good question. I'll tell you, uh, this actually came up in, in a course that I taught in the fall, where uh, I gave a, a one one week session on end of life care, another week session on beginning of life care, it's supposed to be totally separate sessions. Uh, on the end of life care, we talked about definitions and determinations of death. So we talked about uh, uh, neurological criteria of death and, and cardiopulmonary criteria of death. And then we started talking about the next week uh, on abortion and women's health. Uh, and a student raised their hand and asked me, um, they said, Professor, I, I don't understand. Uh, are those people who believe in cardiopulmonary criteria, meaning as long as a heart's beating, uh, the person's deemed alive, would they also then be against abortion if there's a fetal heart rate? And I said, that's a really great question because what you're doing is you're, you're trying to recognize uh, coherence of argument or consistency of position, right? So in one respect, yeah, I mean, you, you, you the question of what one should do um, should be always tied to what is, right? It's hard to have a behavioral decision or an ethics decision without having an ontological question of like, I know what's going on, or I know what, what the world is, therefore now I know what to do about it. 
Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to tie end of life and beginning of life, right? Um, even if you're saying that they are both bookends of a story, um, the way a story starts and the way a story ends could be disanalogous, right? You could say that um, a, a fetus is uh, a prenatal life, life in potential, potential life. Uh, you, you can have different uh, ontological categories or definitions um, and say those are not the same as a person who's choosing when their life ends or if they can choose when their life ends. So now the question about longevity. So I do think end-of-life care talks about or, 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 or implies longevity and looks at the balance between longevity and quality, right? So, and this goes to your suffering question. Uh, question. Um, do we look at life as of infinite value or of inestimable value such that um, quantity trumps quality, whatever quality is? Um, or do we say, um, now this is from a crude economic framework, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be so crude, but it actually is just a really good analogy. Or do we say that quality is it should be considered in the respect of diminishing marginal returns? Right? If suffering is so great and continues to increase, such that not only is the next year or the next month or the next day worse than the previous one, but it creates uh, a situation where the narrative or the perception of your entire life now decreases with that extra day. Um, then you're talking about longevity, but longevity in relation to the whole and a person's subjective reality as well. Right. So yeah, these are these are questions of not only what, but how and what we should do, as well as even in the what, how are we determining the what from an objective, each day is a day or each day should be determined by how we're living it. Very interesting. Should organ and tissue donation in death and dignity or, or euthanasia cases um, uh, be considered or does this really cross a medical ethics line? creating conflict of interest. Yeah. So I'll give you two examples of, of um, the relationship between um, death and organ donation. Um, and then I'll answer your question. So in Bush's President's Council of Bioethics, they, they had a white paper on um, definitions, criteria of death, and how it relates to organ donation. And they were very clear and explicit to say that we should never look at our definitions of death in the same breath as what we should do about organ donation, because it will look as if, even if they're not doing that, but it will look as if um, we are now defining something in order for us to get something out of that definition. Let me say it really crassly. Let's accept brain death so we can grab more organs, as opposed to saying death is a uh, brain death is a valid criteria for death unto itself. Right? So there, the conflict of interest um, uh, speaks to a mistrust or a, or a distrust between uh, patients and patients' family members and the medical community, right? Either at large in terms of who's making these definitions and criteria, or even you know how uh, uh, in the hospitals in terms of when declaration of death is, right? That's one of the reasons why you'll have uh, one uh, one team talking about end of life care, and then or medical futility or 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 or, or 
a clinical situation, and then another team come in, uh, the Oregon procurement team, right? Now, let me tell you the second story. So uh, a couple of years ago, there was um, a proponent in Canada, there was a group that was uh, proposing uh, uh, death by organ donation. So basically, it was a, a uh, the argument was, look, people want to um, take advantage of death with dignity, um, but they also want to be altruistic in doing so by also being organ donors. So why not put the two together and um, make sure that they're able to donate the most viable organs possible by dying through organ donation? So that is the complete opposite of a conflict of interest. That's a confluence of interest, right? Like they're trying to say, look, I have both of these interests. The patient themselves have both of these interests. How can the medical team facilitate that interest as opposed to saying, I'm nervous that you're going to kill me for the sake of my organs, right? So when you look at conflict of interest in general, you kind of have to see a couple of things. One is, uh, what is the conflict? Uh, is the conflict in terms of a... a um, conflict of result or goods, or is it a conflict of uh, motivation or incentive? Right. So, mm -hmm. in the in the American sense, the the, the um, uh, white paper sense, it was a um, conflict of um, incentive, meaning like we might give this definition, or there's a perception of this definition for the sake of a result. In the Canadian sense, it wasn't. It didn't end up being a conflict of interest because the incentives were the same, and even if the goods seemed disparate, they ended up coming together. We live in a world of limited resources, whether that's medical care, money, you name it. Um, should utilization of resources be considered in end of life discussions? Ah, oh, that is a, such a hard question. Um, one of the reasons why it's so hard of a question is because it depends on which lens you're looking through or which person you're talking to. Now, let me explain what I mean. Uh, if you're a clinician and you have a fiduciary responsibility to your patient, then economic or resource consideration should not be taken into consideration, right? You have to zealously advocate for the well-being of your patient who is vulnerable, who puts their, their trust in you in order to care and cure, right? If you're looking at a uh, public health lens, uh, then you realize that even if you want to say that healthcare should be a public good, um, it's still a finite good and there's going to be opportunity cost. So how you look at how to allocate resources so that you maximize the benefits to a population, even if clinicians have fiduciary responsibilities to individual patients, then you, you can't not look at resources, right? So the difficulty though, when you say, well, look, you know, end of life care is, is the most expensive care that we have, and it uh, uh, takes the most uh, dollars out of uh, the funding that we have for healthcare or, you know, the healthcare economy. And shouldn't that money be better spent towards preventative care or pediatric care or, or something else? That's going to be very difficult to argue, especially if in a public discourse kind of way, um, because then you're saying certain people are going to be worth money 
uh, more than other people are. Well, it also doesn't seem to fit well with the legal um, and regulatory regimen where we view everything through the eyes of autonomy of the patient. Yeah, no, of course, of course. I mean, there was an argument. Oh, this is such a bad argument. There was an argument during the pandemic uh, that, uh, look, we have to do triage. Resource allocation is going to be important, right? So this was like a, an acute resource allocation question as it was a big resource allocation question. Like you're asking with like end of life care. Uh, so there was uh, one uh, a position held by great bioethicists, or uh, I think they're great bioethicists, um, that say, oh, we should look at life years. Whoever has the most life years left should take priority um, because we should maximize not good, but the number of years available in a population. Right? In effect, what that's saying is young people should be treated and old people shouldn't be. Right? It did not consider, well, what happens if you have a 20-year-old who has individually uh, you know, a certain number of life years and a six-year-old who objectively has less life years but is taking care of five people, like two parents, uh, three grandkids, and without his support or her support, those five people might also have less life years, right? Doesn't so, that, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, no, but I mean, it just seems to me to speak to the human need to take something that's subjective and make it objective, right? I mean, we we want to quantify this into to numbers. And, this is not something that easily translates. Do you agree? I agree. I think it does a couple of things. One, it look it tries to reduce everything to a metric. Um, so in health resources, the metric is going to be a dollar, right? But it's really hard to then say a person's life can just be evaluated by a dollar. Although, I mean, if you if you um, look at an actuary, they might do that. But in, in a in a larger context, it, to reduce things to 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 one metric is really difficult. Uh, the second is uh, the relationship between objectivity and subjectivity speaks to suffering, quality of life, you know, um, impact, um, and and like what each person sees as their own value of living, right? The third thing, which isn't really subjectivity objectivity, it, but it's more of a this is more complex than you're allowing it to be. Um, and each piece might be objective. Um, you're just not incorporating all of the factors that should be considered, right? Makes, makes sense. And it's, it's certainly not something that the medical profession does on a routine basis. I would say that the legal profession does do that on a routine basis, right? We, we, we assign dollar amounts to to death and suffering is part of the day job, but that's not what happens with, with medicine. It's um, not, it's not. I mean, you speak to doctors and nurses. It's offensive, um, right? Yeah. They look at people. As is most of the legal profession to a lot of physicians. So I, I get it. Yeah. Um, what, let's, let's shift gears, professor. Um, in recent years, we've seen some pharmacies refuse to provide medication to prisons that are trying to enforce death penalties, right? They won't provide the, the cocktail um, for, for ethical um, reasons. Should providers be able to choose if they participate in death and dignity or euthanasia? Yeah, so this is, this is, a, this is a complicated question. 
Um, so one, with regards to pharmacists who, who are not, not providing um, death penalty cocktails, I mean, the reason why they're doing that is because even if they may think that the death penalty is a valid form of punishment, they may also then say, but pharmacists, are, are, their role in society is not to kill people, but to help cure people. And that speaks outside their role as a healer. Same thing for, for physicians and, and, and physicians not acting as um, doctors for the death penalty, right? The question of moral conscience, even when something is seen as part and parcel of medicine, um, speaks to the relationship between professional autonomy and the autonomy of a professional, right? Like if you're a member of a profession that has certain expectations and certain duties uh, and the profession itself has the expectation that they will treat a person and, and standard of care is a certain way, does a person who joins that profession then lose their ability to say, no, 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 like I'm a part of the profession, but I'm just not doing that. Um, or do they still have autonomy for moral conscience? So we still allow uh, in the profession uh, the autonomy of moral conscience, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's beginning to get qualified in a lot of ways, right? So imagine someone who is a, a physician who is morally uh, opposed to abortion, but they live in a state that currently allows abortion. Uh, I mean, things are getting complicated, uh, but they themselves have a moral objection, but they're the only provider in in um you know a, a normal radius where people can can travel to like does their moral conscious um uh, take priority over their professional responsibilities right that's complicated uh, a lot of medical societies say no it shouldn't uh, a lot of individuals who have that moral conscience say yes it should so it's it's a real it's a real difficult debate i, I think what a lot of times what uh, healthcare systems try to do, of course, now this speaks to resource allocation as well, is if they have uh, a difficulty where people are, are trying to exercise moral conscience, but they need to provide certain services to make sure they have coverage, right? Um, but that's becoming harder and harder. So it's, it's still a question up for debate. And it's actually a really good moral question that healthcare leaders should be thinking about. What, let's stick with the... Um point of view of someone other than the, the patient. And now I'm interested in your thoughts on uh, death and dignity's impact upon family members and, and third parties. Yeah. Um, there was a great French movie that came out this year. You know what it's called? Um, but it's about a, a, a man uh, who uh, wants, to, he had a stroke and he wants to um, uh, undergo death with dignity. And now death with dignity is illegal in France. So he asked his daughters uh, to be able to um, help him uh, um, utilize uh, death dignity by going to, I think, Belgium or Switzerland or something like that, uh, like a different country. Uh, and did not really care what his if his daughters were opposed to it or not. They, he just was like, you're my daughters. You're going to help me. Um, now I'm not saying like this is the quintessential you know case, and everyone should see this movie to learn about what family dynamics is. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> um, but um, I, I think that the effect of first off the effect of um, family members being caregivers uh, um, to a person, and 
um, the effect of family members when when a family member dies um, is it speaks to the relationship that they have in life. The closer and the more responsible family members feel for each other, the harder the loss may be. Um, the more unexpected it may, be, uh, the harder it may be. Um, that also depends on how a person passes away, um, the type of suffering they went through, whether people were ready for it, and, and so forth and so forth. Um, I think that the effect of caregivers on someone who utilizes death and dignity or in any type of end of life um, care planning um, really needs discussion among the patient and their family members. And that doesn't happen. Like it, I, I've been to so many talks with even physicians where uh, I would ask them like, like, do you, do you kind of know what your, your end of life plan might look like or your, your healthcare when you uh, age would, would, what you would want? And like, yeah, yeah, I have my, my goals and my values and so forth. I mean, I do this for a living. I know what I'm doing. And I said, uh, have you talked about that with your, your, your kids? And I'm like, no, no, I don't talk about that with my kids. So, you know, the question of like the effects that people have um, in terms of the decisions that they make and then how they communicate it, especially when you know that your family members, if they're going to serve as caregivers, are going to have to deal with your logistics. They're going to have to provide emotional support. Sometimes they might have to make decisions on your behalf if you then are no longer competent or, or lose capacity. Um, but we don't have these conversations. And those are physicians, people who are physicians or, or in the medical space. The majority of people don't even think about, let alone talk about end of life care planning, because why would you think about that? You're thinking about, you know, what you do every day. So this is one of the challenges I think that end of life uh, care has in general is that we tend not to consider what our lives may be like in the future, let alone communicate our values of what we might want to those who will be taking care of us as we age. Your answer um, leads me to, to, to my next question. And as we're, we're kind of rapid, we're, we're about out of time here, but as we conclude our time together, I'd like to talk about that, that future view. Um, I'll ask you to look into the future. If we were to have these discussions 10 or 15 years from now, uh, how would the conversation be different than what we're talking about today? I think socially, it'll be really similar. I think legally, it'll be really different. So socially, I think that we'll still be talking about people not really thinking about their end-of-life care, how it affects caregivers. Um, I think we'll still be thinking about uh, healthcare resources and what that means um, in terms of, of treating patients at varying ages. Um, I think legally, more states will have um, enacted death with dignity legislation. I think that, I mean, just to give like a brief statistic, um, I think since the 90s, uh, American support for euthanasia has been around 70%. So, you know, you could see like both popular approval and the number of states that have uh, bills proposed uh, continually is higher and, and increasing. Which is interesting because I will say on the physician side, uh, uh, a great majority of physicians are willing to discuss medical aid and dying with the patient and maybe refer for in those states where it's legal and refer 
a patient for medical aid and dying. Um, to be a consultant, it's less. To be one who actually facilitates or, or is an attending physician in terms of medical aid and dying, even, even, even less. So there's still a little bit of a disconnect in terms of what we say is support and voice versus what we say is support and action, right? Um, but on the legal side, I think it'll be um, uh, it'll be much more widespread. And I also think that speaks to a social phenomenon that we continually see, which is the rise of individualism as opposed to uh, communitarianism. And I don't mean collectivism. I mean, we no longer really see ourselves in um, like groups like families and neighborhoods and cities and so forth. Um, we really see our communities as those who share our interests. So we're we're really the primacy of the individual over the you know community um, in terms of choice and rights and privilege and favor um, is is increasing. So in that respect, um, the ability for a person to choose not only how to live but when they want that life to end will seem like like there wouldn't even be a debate on it. Uh, I think in ten to fifteen years from now, in general. Of course, just to qualify that other philosophical schools and religions and so forth will always um, be struggling with these types of tensions, but I'm talking about more general discourse. Perfect. Well, my guest has been Ira Bedzo. Professor Bedzo, thank you so much for being on Sound Practice. This has been a real pleasure. I really appreciate it. It's, I don't get to talk about these issues so deeply that often. And I really enjoyed having a conversation with you. This has been great. I appreciate your thoughtfulness on these, these answers. Thank you. Uh, My sincere thanks to Ira Bedzo. Dr. Bedzo is helping the medical profession wrestle with a difficult topic. His thoughts and efforts are greatly appreciated. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time. On Sound Practice, we release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Batman and Robin. Rick Kapow.